Hi, and welcome to my new show, the Danielle Noonan Podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. To kick off this first series, I was lucky enough to speak to one of my favorite people in tech, Andy Hertzfeld. Andy helped revolutionize the home PC industry as part of the original Macintosh team before founding his own startups, including General Magic, which imagined the iPhone 17 years ahead of time. In this conversation, we discuss how he fell in love with programming, the early days of building the Macintosh. He shares the invaluable lessons he learned from a career and friendship with Steve Jobs, as well as what it takes to create something truly revolutionary. Just before we hear the interview, there'll be an ad from our series sponsor, Sensate. But before that, I want to make a quick apology for the less than perfect audio. Andy and I had some Wi-Fi issues during our interview, which we weren't able to totally eliminate. We have done our best to iron them out, so I hope it doesn't affect your enjoyment of what is really a great episode. Now, here's an advert from our series sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Sensate, the device which helps you manage your stress and anxiety in as little as 10 minutes a day. The reason I am so happy to have Sensate on board for this series is because I have seen firsthand how their device can change lives. Like so many, I was someone who had never found a way to quieten my mind, despite really wanting to get into meditation. I had tried various apps but never got further than downloading them. That was until last year. Like many others, 2020 taught us so much, not least that we need to take better care of ourselves. Sensate is a pebble-shaped device that you place on your chest bone whilst you listen to relaxing music via the Sensate app. The device will then vibrate in harmony with the meditation track you choose, and the combined therapy help you to get into a totally relaxed state. I started using this to help me get to sleep at night, and it worked after the first session. But I know others who use it to reduce general anxiety, or to help them focus at work, or even to help them with writer's block. I recommend this device to all my founder friends, but it would work really well for anyone who's looking to reduce stress and anxiety and improve their overall well-being. Its simplicity makes it easy to adopt a long-term daily habit of meditation that works for you, anytime, anywhere. If you want to try Sensate for yourself, head to www.getsensate.com. That's www.getsensate.com and use discount code POD, that's P-O-D, to get an exclusive 10% discount off your first purchase. That's www.getsensate.com and use my discount code POD. First of all, I want to say thank you very much for for joining me today. Um, My first question is really about your childhood. I wanted to know more about how Andy Hertzfeld came to be and the, the path that you chose. So can you tell me what you were like as a child? Oh, boy. Um, I was childlike. <laughs> uh, but I, I was always interested in, well, I loved reading. I, I learned to read in first grade and just was a voracious reader my entire life. I loved math. I had a talent for math. I was really lucky. Uh, in the 60s, it was really hard to access computers, but I went to a high school that had a time-sharing terminal uh, to a time-sharing computer, a general electric computer about 10 miles away. I took a programming class when I was in 10th grade and just was totally smitten with computers. I quickly used up the entire budget for the computer class and had to invent applications to convince this that were useful to the school uh, in order to get access to it. 
Uh, and then uh, I, I, when I went to college, uh, I went to Brown University, which had a nice computer department. But I didn't think of computers as a career or even a major. I was a math major until I started taking the graduate math classes and finding it. And it got difficult for the first time in my life. And I found out I didn't really like that. Uh, but I did love programming. And so I made computer science my major. I thought I'd get a PhD in computer science and went to UC Berkeley in the PhD program. Uh, but then I fell in love with the Apple II and stopped grad school and started at Apple, 1979. I'm a parent, so I'm always curious how some of the most brilliant minds started out. And every time someone tells me, oh, it's because I read lots of books and, you know, I, I go to my son and I remind him that this is what he needs to be doing. So, Yeah, I'm trying to do the, the same thing with my grandkids, just oh, really? instill, instill in them a, a love of reading. And with, with the programming, you said that part of the um, reason you got into programming was at school. You were trying to kind of convince the school to allow you more time on the computer. What, what kind of, what were you creating back then? I was always fascinated with graphics. And uh, so I was plotting graphics, even though there were no gra graphic capability, but you can do it with stars and dots. And so I was plotting different math functions and anything that was interesting. But then uh, what I had to do to convince the school to allow me to program, I wrote a class rank program. Uh, that managed all the data and computed class ranks, sorted it and stuff, uh, that the school was interested in using, but just it was a little bit impractical. Uh, so I don't think it was really deployed. One of the most interesting ones, though, was I wrote a computer dating uh, system that was actually used uh, for the junior prom. Oh, wow. Uh, to, match, to match people up. And that it turned out a little bit disastrous because uh, a flaw in the program was that I didn't eliminate people once they were paired. So the same person could be paired with multiple people. I didn't find that out till it ran. Had to scurry to fix that. How old were you when you did that? Uh, 16, I think. 16 or 17. So when did homebrew become a thing in your life? The home, is it the Homebrew Computer Club? Yeah, well, it, I read about it, but I, I never, I moved out to California, so I was right in the backyard. I was living in Berkeley because uh, I went to UC Berkeley. So that was, that's about 30 miles away from uh, Slack where the homebrew club met. Uh, so I picked up a little of it just from my interest in, in personal computers, but it was a little before my time. I never went to a homebrew meeting. For me, it, more, it was more like the Apple Club, which I was a founding member of. It was founded in 1978, April 1978, and that became a, a real focus uh, for my programming the Apple II. Uh, there was, you know, in those days, you couldn't sell software. There was no market yet. Uh, it wasn't even well understood that there would be a software market. Uh, so I gave all my programs away, and uh, I used to stay up all night uh, before the, the club met once a month. I'd stay up all night before the club meeting, polishing up whatever I was giving away to the club that, that month. Uh, so, that, so that was a little bit, that was hobbyist, very hobbyist oriented, like the homebrew computer club, but more oriented directly on the Apple II than the homebrew computer club it was more about the earliest microcomputers like the MSI and the Altair. 
How did you meet Steve Wozniak? What's the story behind that? Oh, at the Apple Club that I was just talking about. Uh, he, common acquaintance, John Draper, I was friendly with at the club, and he told me what he was friendly with Woz, and he t- told me that Woz was going to uh, show up at the June meeting, the third meeting we ever had of the San Francisco Apple Corps. Uh, and so I got there early, positioned myself by the door, and scrutinized everybody who walked in, thinking, oh, is that Woz? Is that Woz? Because I had never met him. And I was able to pick him out just from the way he carried himself. Uh, so I met him at that meeting, and I ended up going to lunch with him and John Draper at the end of it. So that was my first encounter with Woz, who I just idolized to this day. Having met Steve Woz, uh, Steve Wozniak, it wasn't through that that you ended up at Apple, was it? What, can you tell me more about how you ended up at Apple? I started writing useful programs for the Apple II, and finally I wrote one uh, that you know, and what, what I do with my programs at the best ones, I try to publish in magazines like Dr. Dobbs Journal or Call Apple. But I finally wrote one that solved difficult system problem. Believe it or not, the first Apple IIs did not support lowercase letters, uh, which is sounds crazy uh, by today's standards, but they didn't. And so I realized I could make them support lowercase letters using the graphics screen. And so I wrote a fairly ambitious for the time program that gave the Apple II lowercase letters using the high-res graphics thing. And I was going to publish that in a magazine like all my other programs. But I had a friend who also had just recently gotten an Apple II. He said, you'd be crazy to give that away. You could make tens of thousands of dollars, you know, if you tried to sell it. I said, I don't know anything about selling it. That's beyond my skill set. He goes, oh, don't worry. I'll sell it for you. You know, I'll, I'll get someone to buy it and we'll split the money. I said, oh, that sounded good to me. So um, we started going around to the tiny little software publishing companies that were springing up in uh, 1978. Um, And I was shocked that each one we met with wanted to sell the program. And so we thought, oh, they're probably not big enough. And so after three meetings like that, we ended up meeting with Steve Jobs at Apple Computer to sell them my character generator program. And uh, I was amazed that they were, Steve was super nice to us, even though some Apple employees like Chris Espinosa, who I met at UC Berkeley, told when I told him we were going to demo to Steve Jobs, he goes, be careful, he's, he's going to bite your head off if he doesn't like it. I preferred to keep my head attached to my neck, so I had some trepidation. Uh, but Steve loved the program and was really nice to us and said Apple would buy it, which was a, a dream. Uh, But the next week, his assistant, uh, John Couch, called me up saying, we changed our mind because this was, you know, a pretty valid reason. Uh, My program used one of the two empty ROM slots in the Apple II, but they, all their plans for those they put were putting Microsoft Basic there. At the time, uh, there was only Integer Basic, so they didn't have room for for my program. Uh, So I I was able to sell it to a a different company. But what John Couch said is, well, we don't want to publish your program, but we'd love to hire you. We have a project in mind. That was in January 1979. And I was thrilled to want to work at Apple, but I had already put three years into a PhD program uh, at UC Berkeley. And I thought, well, I shouldn't leave without getting my degree. So I said, okay, well, I'll wait till the summer. I'll, I'll finish up. I'll get a master's thesis because a PhD would have taken years, uh, but I'd at least get my master's and then start at Apple uh, over the summer. Uh, And so that's what I did. Uh, I learned a 
a bitter lesson there, though, because delaying it six months made me miss a four-to-one Apple stock split. They were offering the same number of shares even before and after they split, which was probably worth, today it would be worth tens of millions of dollars. Even at the time, it was worth millions of dollars. And my master's degree was always worthless. <laughs> it's a good lesson in life, that, isn't yeah. it? I started at Apple in the summer of 79 and was just thrilled. Uh, I, I ended up with a desk near Steve Wozniak, uh, and I just loved uh, the first assignment they had me work on. What was that first assignment? What was the first project? Uh, it was Apple's first printer that they designed themselves called the Silent Type Printer. It was a small thermal printer um, that uh, could do graphics. And I loved the graphics, and um, it was a great project. And uh, it was unbelievable. I was able to, it, it shipped. It actually went, came to market uh, less than six months after I started at Apple. So it was great. Uh, the first time ever I developed something and saw it in the stores. And what, so what was, what's the story about you joining the Macintosh team? Isn't there a funny story about how you were enlisted onto the Macintosh team? Yeah, I tell the story in my book, uh, which um, there was a day, uh, actually, I believe it was February 26, uh, 1981. Uh, Mike Scott, the president of Apple at the time, decided to fire a, a more than a quarter of the Apple II group because they had made some bad hires. People didn't really have the right attitude. Uh, but that made everyone shell-shocked. You know, when I walked into work and it looked like a bomb had hit the place. Everyone was huddling in small groups. It, I, when I found out they had fired a friend of mine who I thought was one of the best programmers at Apple, that made me pretty disillusioned. And I thought, do I really want to work here? I, I did, but it, it was stressful and I was disillusioned, but I ended up telling a friend I was thinking about leaving in protest. Uh, and he told Mike Scott, the guy who had fired everyone, who was the president of Apple. And Mike Scott uh, called me up and said, we don't want you to quit. What can we do to make you stay? And I had said, oh, maybe working on the Macintosh project. I was already friends with Burl Smith, the hardware designer, and Bud Smith, Bud Treble, the only programmer working on it. Uh, and so I thought, you know, hey, if I could work on the Mac with um, Bill and Bud, that would be great. So Mike Scott told Steve Jobs, who had just taken over the project. Jeff Reskin had started the project, uh, but just about three weeks before the Black Wednesday, that the day Scotty fired everyone, uh, Steve had taken it over. Uh, so um, Steve's uh, assistant called me up and said, uh, come to his office. I walked into Steve's office, and Steve, the first thing Steve asked me, are you any good? Uh, we only want great people working on the Macintosh. I don't think you're good enough. And so I said, oh, I think I'm pretty good, but I could ask around. Uh, and he, he ended up saying, okay, well, I'll, I'll, we'll see about that. Uh, and he went and talked to uh, Burl and Brian Howard, who were working on the Mac, and I guess I passed muster. And so um, on a Thursday afternoon at about 4.30, he came walking by my cubicle uh, and said, hey, congratulations, you're on the Mac team now. I said, oh, fantastic. Uh, I'll start Monday. Just give me a day to get the work I'm doing on the Apple II in good enough order for someone else to pick it up. Uh, and I'll just start in, you know, essentially three days. Uh, and Steve goes, no, uh, the Mac is the future of Apple and you're going to start on it now. And he went and he took my Apple II and unplugged it, even though it had live software I was working on and picked it up and started walking away with it. 
without saying another word. And what could I do but uh, go after my computer? He dropped it into the trunk of his uh, car and drove, drove only about four blocks to the little tiny office where the Macintosh team that had about four or five people working on the project at the time and plopped it down on an empty desk and said, congratulations, you're on the Mac team. I started going through the drawers of the desk and saw they were full of stuff. It wasn't really an empty desk. Turns out it was Jeff Raskin's desk who he had, Steve had just fired uh, the day before. So he hadn't even cleared out his desk. The seat was still warm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He wasn't really fired. He was uh, forced to take a mandatory three-month leave of absence. But did he ever come back? He didn't come back, did he? He came back for a brief time, uh, but he was at odds with Steve, and uh, he wanted different decisions made than the rest of the team. So he didn't last very long when he came back, just another few months. Talking of Jeff, um, I know he's kind of reported as being the person that conceived the idea for the Macintosh. And I know there's disputes about uh, how it evolved. Can you, can you tell me what his original idea was? Yeah, absolutely. Jeff deserves great credit for two things. He started the project with a vision of a small, uh, inexpensive desktop computer that was incredibly easy to use. Uh, and that kind of stayed stayed with the project. And, and then even more important than conceiving it, uh, he put the initial team together, uh, hiring Burl Smith to do the hardware, uh, Bud Tribble to write the software, his great friend Brian Howard uh, to do every everything that, that needed doing, really, uh, Joanna Hoffman for the marketing. So those were the four people on the team uh, before I started. Uh, and so by the time Steve, Steve took it over, there was an exciting vision uh, and a great, great, the kernel of a great team. And Jeff deserves a lot of credit for that. Now, where the controversy comes in, Jeff had a very specific ideas about software, what the Macintosh software should be like. Uh, and they weren't really compatible with what Steve wanted or really the rest of the team. Uh, Jeff didn't like the mouse which is a very key component of what a Macintosh is. And he didn't want to use the 68,000 microprocessor, which is the very core of what the hardware was. So Jeff started the Mac, but the Mac that ended up coming out wasn't really Jeff's, Jeff's Macintosh. But Jeff did get to do Jeff's Macintosh. He made a deal with Canon uh, to do the computer he really wanted to do called the Canon Cat. Uh, so it did get a chance in the market, but it totally flopped. What? Tell me about the early days on the Macintosh team. So you're a small team to start with. Steve's obviously kind of taken over the reins. What was the original vision? Well, the original Steve, uh, the original vision was Jeff's vision, which we weren't really pursuing. Uh, but uh, vis- Steve's vision and the consensus vision of the team was sort of make the people's Lisa take all the great stuff that was going on uh, with the Lisa project, but not the sort of weak stuff like the Lisa hardware was a little bit weak, uh, and just make it, the Lisa was uh, projected to cost $5,000. It uh, initially cost $10,000. Uh, that was way too expensive to be machine for consumers. Uh, so the vision of Macintosh was take, take the great work do, done with Lisa, but put it in a computer that cost five times less, only $2,000 instead of $10,000. Uh, so what you could call it the people's Lisa. 
And what was the landscape like at the time, the kind of PC home computer? What, did anyone have a computer at home? Program yeah, they were just starting. The Apple II, the Apple II was already growing by leaps and bounds by the time we started the Macintosh. Um, Apple already went public uh, by the time I started on the Macintosh, not Jeff's Macintosh, but Steve's Macintosh. So there was a, a burgeoning market for home computers. Uh, also, the Commodore PET and the Radio Shack TRS-80 were out before the Macintosh. Uh, but we realized they were just too hard. You know, they were okay for hobbyists, uh, but not a general user. Uh, the, the software was just too hard. The command line, you had to keep everything in your head. So we saw the graphic user interface as the key to making computers truly useful to the masses. And not only useful, we wanted to make a lovable machine, some, something that was fun and enjoyable to use. And the graphics user interface uh, let us do that. So really what the Macintosh pioneered were easy to use home computers as opposed to uh, the more complex ones that were in use at the time. Now, the IBM PC came out while we were working on the Macintosh. I have a story in my book entitled Donkey about the Mac team's initial reaction to the IBM PC. We just thought it was a donkey. <laughs> really, really awkward and clunky. And you're talking about IBM because obviously there was a few other companies around that were kind of rather large, shall we say, compared to Apple. Apple kind of grew very fast. Um, was Steve Jobs ever worried about competition? Because obviously every kind of product you work on takes a certain amount of time. And didn't he say, wasn't it on your kind of early days, he, he said to you it has to be done in like 10 months. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Well, Steve's always impatient and wants it earlier than possible and sometimes has the magic to make miracles happen. Uh, but in that case, um, you know, it's a little bit foolish to have schedules that are impossible. You know, it creates stress and um, it ends up not, you, you don't make the best product that can be if you have wildly unrealistic schedules. And so uh, the good part of Steve is he, you know, he wasn't totally unrealistic and we had to slip the schedule as, as necessary. Ended up taking about three years to develop the Mac instead of 10 months. But that's pretty quick though still, isn't it? Oh, uh, no. Not not by, I wouldn't say three years is pretty quick. Ten months was impossibly quick. We could have done it quicker if we didn't uh, run into trouble with the floppy disk drive uh, that we were scheduled to use. You know, there were ups and downs, and uh, three years was disappointing, but still, you know, it was still about five years ahead of the market. Yeah, that's what I meant. I think when I look back at that point in history, because you were creating something so new, to me, it seems revolutionary that you could change the technology path in three years. But I, I understand what you mean in terms of actual timeline of the product. What were some of the early obstacles that you had to kind of overcome? Well, um, the, the biggest obstacle we had in developing the Mac was achieving the price point that we wanted. We really wanted a computer for ordinary people. Our target was $1,500. In order to do that, we had to have as little memory as possible because memory was an expensive component. So initially, uh, Jeff's idea was 64K of RAM, but with the graphic user interface, we saw that was just, well, you'd never be able to squish it down into 64K. So we quickly went with 128K. What, what it ended up uh, coming out, we shipped the Mac at 128K, but it's it was a real limitation. But the hardest part of developing the Mac 
was squeezing down all the software we needed uh, to get it to run effectively in 128k bytes. So that was hard. Uh, also, we had a bit of dissension or competition with uh, the, the app. We, the Macintosh, as envisioned, was competing with both the Apple II um, in terms of price. It was priced about the same as an Apple II, but also the Lisa uh, with the graphic user interface. We were sort of a low-cost Lisa. So both teams felt a little bit like they were competing with us. So there was some, and then Steve, um, was not good at um, making the other teams feel bad. He uh, feel good about what they're doing. He goes, "Oh, you guys stink. The Macintosh is great." So there was a little bit of animosity there. Nothing major, but a, you know, I would consider it an obstacle. And then just the schedules. You know, we were very, very ambitious at getting at it out as soon as possible, or sooner. <laughs> I heard that you guys referred to yourselves as a team of pirates and you had a pirate flag flying from the top of the building. Where did that come from, that pirate's name? Oh, that was Steve, that was Steve Jobs. Uh, we'd have these retreats every six months where this team would go off-site to a resort or something and we'd have two or three days of intensive product planning and meetings. A lot of it was motivational, just get it. Steve wanted to get everyone fired up. And so he started uh, beginning the, the retreat with uh, what he called sayings from Chairman Jobs. And he'd have three pithy little goals. And in the one from uh, January 1983, uh, one of them was uh, like one of the things he said was real artist ship uh, to motivate us. Hey, enough time developing, we got a ship. But another one was, let's, it's better to be a pirate than join the Navy. You know, I think, you know, Steve, we resonated with Steve having a rebellious spirit. A lot of the early team members were a little bit chagrined that as the team grew, it necessarily came more bureaucratic. So I think Steve was trying to uh, essentially pander to us, uh, saying, hey, let's be, you know, let's be pirates. Uh, and something interesting I thought of uh, just years after it happened, uh, but the pirate metaphor was appropriate for what Steve did to Jeff Raskin. He made him walk the plank, uh, basically. Uh, but, um, you know, it, I would say it just uh, exemplifies the rebel spirit that was at the core of uh, Apple Computer and, in particular, the Macintosh. But it didn't. So um, the story, which is in my book, was uh, Steve Caps, a brilliant programmer who had just joined us in January, just in time for that retreat, um, thought of the idea of we were moving into a new building uh, that could hold 100 people just across the street from where we were. It was a building called Banley 3. We were in Banley 4. We went to tour the building uh, before we moved in, and it just looked like every other Apple building. It didn't, it didn't have personality. So Steve Capps had the idea, well, we'd give it some personality if we flew a pirate flag from the roof of the building, which was simultaneously uh, honoring Steve's saying, but also mocking it, I think, or parodying it to some degree. So we snuck up there one night and flew the pirate flag uh, and uh, became symbolic of, of the rebel attitude of the Macintosh team. And what, what does Steve think of the flag? Did he like it? He loved it. <laughs> If he didn't like it, it wouldn't have stayed up there very long, I don't think. <laughs> That's true. Um, what were some of the favorite elements of the Macintosh? You obviously worked on a whole broad range of things. What were like, some of your favorite parts of the, the work that you did there? Um, 
Oh, just all of it, really. Uh, I mean, I, I, I loved, I worked on, I initially started doing low-level software, writing the device drivers for the disk and the keyboard and the mouse. Uh, but when Bud Tribble, who was the only programmer on the Macintosh uh who started before me had to leave to go back to medical school. He, he was on a one-year leave of absence from an MD-PhD program that he had already put four years into. Uh, and he had, you know, the school said, hey, you know, we'll kick you out of the program if you don't come back. So he had to leave. So I took over what he was doing, which was the graphics-oriented software, essentially taking the brilliant software that Bill Atkinson wrote for Lisa and making it run well for the Mac. So I started doing that and writing what I, what we called the user interface toolkit that all the applications use to uh, develop the user interface. Then, uh, you know, one of the, my most favorite parts after I finished uh, the user interface toolkit was developing the initial desk accessories, the tiny little programs that you could run along with others like a calculator, a notepad, etc. And one of my very favorite ones of those was the one I did last, which was the control panel. We had a guy I made, uh, along with Stu Susan Care, we had the idea, let's try to make an interface that had no text in it whatsoever that's purely graphics. Susan came up with some brilliant graphics for it, and I thought that was one of the most fun parts of the Mac UI that I love to work on. And it's something that has stayed, like Susan's work is so critical and uh, you met at school, didn't you? Zach, you were the person yeah, that brought you in. Junior high school, I think. Uh, she moved, uh, no, high school. I think she um, moved to the, to the Philadelphia area uh, when we were in 10th grade. Became friendly with her, stayed in touch with her. She moved out to California for other reasons. Uh, I visited her once or twice. And I realized it was kind of my idea that uh, we need an artist. Uh, we have so much graphics. The programmers were doing the graphics and, you know, Bill Atkinson and Steve Capps were pretty good at making icons, but not that good. Uh, and uh, so I had the idea of, hey, let, maybe we can hire Susan. I asked her about it. And first, uh, before I even mentioned it to anyone at Apple, um, I, I wanted to see how well she could do. So I told her to get... Uh, uh, some graph paper, as fine graph paper as you can have, and draw pictures with it by just filling in dots, um, essentially pixels, uh, old-fashioned pixels. Uh, and she did some fantastic initial work. So I started showing that to people around Apple. She said, yeah, she's really good. She came in and interviewed. Her personality and spirit, really, a sense of humor in particular, really resonated with the team. So she started working in uh, January 1983. And you're right, she did some classic work uh, that lives on to this day. A couple more things on the Macintosh. What was launch day like? Oh, it was a blur, a dream, uh, you know, euphoria. Uh, leading up to launch day, it was, you know, very high pressured and, you know, stressful. So in a way, uh, launch day was the cathartic release of all that pressure and just ecstatic seeing the work that we worked so hard on. Some of us, like Burl, had been working on it for over, over four years. I was working on it for over three years. Um, and so it was a cathartic release and a, really a celebration. Steve did a great job at, at the introduction, which you can watch on YouTube these days. See the demo program that we hastily cooked up after we were exhausted from uh, finishing the system software. 
And so it was uh, ecstatic. And uh, the capper was when we went back to the office uh, after the, the introduction was in the morning, we came back in the afternoon and a big truck pulled up uh, and it had a hundred Macintoshes on it, one Macintosh for every team member, which was a surprise to us. Steve didn't tell us he was gonna do that. And then another story I have about that very first day is when we returned to work, you know, it was hard to start working. We were so keyed up from the introduction. So I had the idea, well, let, I wanna go buy a Macintosh. It was supposed to go on sale the day of the introduction. So myself and a few other people started driving around to the computer stores in the area to see if we could buy one. No one had one, which was a little disappointing. But finally, the third store we went to was willing to sell it to me, even though they didn't have it. So I had the joy of being able to buy one, although not really receive one. I already had a couple, so I didn't really need it. But I, I, it just made it real if you could go out and buy it. You must have felt extremely proud. Yes. Um, now, based on everything that's happened, you've worked very hard for a very long period of time. You have the ecstatic uh, day of launch. What led to you leaving soon after? A bad boss. Uh, basically, I tell the story in my book. The key story is entitled Too Big for My Britches. But we ended up getting a software manager. Um, well, he started out as a software manager, but he became the engineering manager who had an authority problem or, you know, he didn't like uh, the the spirit of the Mac team. He wanted to make it more regimented. In particular, he didn't like us um, talking to Steve. He wanted us to go through the lines of authority. Steve used to have a habit of, he wasn't really around the Mac building much during the day, but around 6 p.m. after regular work ended, he'd come over to the Mac team. We were always usually working late. We'd tell him everything that happened that day, show him demos and stuff. And my manager hated that because he, he never stayed around late. Uh, and so he felt we were, uh, uh, hamstringing him uh, because we'd get all the information right from Steve and we'd tell Steve all, all the information and he felt he was cut out for that. So he was trying to get me to stop talking to Steve, which I didn't really have the power to do. He'd have to tell Steve that, which I think he did, but Steve wouldn't listen to him. So anyway, he, 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 he decided to give me a poor review uh, in January 1983, you'd have reviews once or twice a year that would determine your raises and award of stock options. And he gave me a poor review for the very the time period I was writing the key Macintosh software. Uh, and he was telling me, I have no complaints about your work, but I have complaints about uh, you don't obey authority. You won't listen to me. And I was just freaked out, you know, that, I, that um, the organization was telling me that um, I was doing wrong when I was devoting my life to the thing, working 12 hours a day. Uh, and I thought, I, I just can't work for this guy. Uh, but I also couldn't quit because I love the Macintosh too much. So I vowed I'll stay until the Macintosh launches and then quit, which is essentially what I did. When you, when you talk about this bit in the book, I actually, I got both angry and very upset at the same time because you talk candidly about how upset you were because yes. the review was um, focused on things like how your team felt about you. And it was obviously untrue. Um, yes. But I guess in the moment, you know, you, you have to kind of believe it because this is what the man's saying. Did he, whatever happened to him after you left? Did he stay on? Or? He stayed on. Um, in 1985, uh, there, 
essentially Steve Jobs and John Scully went to war against each other, um, you know, over the Macintosh sales, not meeting expectations. John Scully wanted to make changes that Steve abhorred. So there was a lot of politics going on. But Bob Belleville, who's the, that's the name of the bad manager who made me quit, um, sided with Steve in the, this internecine warfare that was going on, but to the point where they were presenting false product plans to Scully. And, you know, it was really kind of messed up. Uh, but then uh, Steve, in May of 1985, Steve ended up getting fired. And uh, Bob Belleville, because he had sided with Steve in all the fighting, he quit uh, because he had lost, he was, you know, alienated himself from the people who were taking over. Uh, and later, um, he had some mental problems. Uh, and um, I don't want to go into it, but, um, you know, and, and these days I bear, I bear him zero animosity. Uh, I tried uh, when writing the, the sad saga in my book uh, to give him the benefit of the doubt as much as I could to express stuff from his point of view as well as mine. Now I just feel sad that it was, I was immature uh, at the time. If I was, a, you know, if I was a little bit older and wiser, I, I could have dealt with that situation much better and, and not, not have quit. But uh, I, I just was uh, too immature at the time. But you go on to do some amazing stuff. So obviously you go on, you work, you, you set up your own company. And I want to kind of skip ahead because I know the first company you did was doing work still for the Macintosh. You were still doing writing software, weren't you? Yes. Um, can we skip to General Magic? Because sure. I, I actually interviewed Mark recently and it was just such an interesting story. And obviously I've watched the documentary. Um, yes. Can you tell me, obviously you worked on the Macintosh team, which is a unique set of people. And then you've got General Magic. And both times you've got a group of people and they're convinced they're changing the world, which ultimately they do in their own way. So can you tell me what it's like to work on that kind of team in the early days? Well, for one thing, the core of the General Magic team was the core of the Mac team, uh, many of the same people. Uh, and so, you know, we once you work on something like the Macintosh, uh, especially when you're young, you know, we were mostly in our 20s, um, you know, and achieve it. You know, we actually got it out in the world and it did change the world. You know, you don't want to go work on, on mundane stuff. Uh, you know, and uh, for the first five years after the Mac came out, I was still dedicated to making the Macintosh succeed. You know, our co the company Radius, we didn't mention making, you know, solving the, the weaknesses of the Macintosh, you know, as well as making some money. Uh, but so when Mark, when I met Mark and saw the breadth of his vision and how right on it was, uh, it was appealing. It was something that could change the world even more than the Macintosh if we, if we pulled it off. Of course, there's no guarantee of pulling it off. And, but, and then another great attraction to me to work on the Macintosh was Bill Atkinson. Mark was able to convince Bill Atkinson, who was my hero and mentor at Apple. And it was just fantastic to work with Bill again. Uh, and so, of course, I brought in the people or invited the people closest to me, like Joanna and uh, Susan Kerr uh, and others. And so we had, you know, uh, you know, maybe about 50 percent of the core people of the Macintosh. And Bill also brought in the core people who helped him with HyperCard. So we had like 80 percent of the core HyperCard team. Uh, and so the, the first reaction is just, just fun to work 
with your friends on something that could make a big difference in the world. Uh, so that was really exciting. Uh, and then uh, the other part, you know, we had a blank slate. We, we had uh, great ambition, probably too much ambition. If I was to go back and do it again, I would have worked harder to distill it down to its essence and just get that out there first and learn from the world. Instead, we were trying to kind of boil the ocean, innovating in everything at once um, and, you know, and being unrealistic, again, unrealistic about schedules. Uh, it was important to get it out quick, but we thought it was more important to make it beautiful and perfect. But I think we did do excellent work. Uh, and um, again, you know, these situations, you know, it's what we were asking for, but it was became very high pressure. You kind of, with any really ambitious project, you sort of have a honeymoon phase where the vision is beginning to happen and you're really, really excited. Uh, but then that eventually turns into a slog to, sh to ship it. Um, and where it's high pressure and, you know, a lot of stress. And so we went through that. And unfortunately, due to limitations in technology, as well as our own limitations, it just didn't take root in the market. And so it's a very, very sad thing to have this great team with all your friends doing what you thought were great work to have to disband. Uh, so we went through that as well. Bill Atkinson, I've heard him say that there, because obviously a lot of you brought on other people, um, Bill Atkinson said that they were, obviously you were all friends and he felt a deep shame when it failed because he felt like he'd failed his friends because he brought them on. Um, what was your thoughts about that? When, when it didn't work out, how did you feel? Well, I, I didn't really feel like Bill, like I misled the friend and my friends. They hired on. Uh, they had a great time. They learned uh, incredibly. It was a, a great way to, uh, you know, start your career and, and further it. Uh, and so I didn't feel and I, and I didn't feel any remorse at all for the investors who were the, the largest companies in the world, really, Sony, Motorola, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, I, I realized if you're trying to do something ambition, there's risk. Uh, and so I didn't feel bad about that. But I, what I felt bad for was uh, the death of the, the vision. You know, uh, we were trying to create this, what we thought would be an incredibly positive change in the world that would never happen. So we thought, uh, because, you know, the company failed. Uh, and so it was in, with incredible pleasure. And it's really the story of that documentary. That documentary wouldn't have been made without the third act. Otherwise, it would have been just too depressing. But it turned out the young kids that we hired to work on General Magic went on to substantially fulfill uh, the vision that we had. So that, that felt great when it finally happened. And with that team that you had, obviously there was um, a whole lot of you that had worked together before and then you had people like Tony Fidel. What, how, you know, obviously you attract talent when you already have talent. What, what else did it require to get young people on board? Because clearly they could have had an easier life somewhere else. Were they craving that kind of challenge? Yeah, what, what the main recruiting thing to recruit great people is having an incredible vision. Uh, having it be idealistic, and, but also substantial, realistic enough to actually happen. These are smart people. And uh, if, if it didn't seem realistic, that, that wouldn't be enough. So it, to, to have 
a vision that's ambitious enough, but not too ambitious. Ha obviously having the track record of having done something like that before, Bill and I with, with the Macintosh uh, really helped attract people. But also uh, having the personality of the company, the spirit. It was fun to work at General Magic. And what, um, I don't know if, if this was a thing or not, but did Steve Jobs know what you were working on at the time? Was anyone still in yeah. contact with him? Yeah, I was still friends with Steve. I was in touch with him. I brought him by General Magic once to meet with Mark. That was kind of awkward, the two of them sitting across a small table, sizing each other up. I took Steve around and introduced him to all the programmers who were excited about it. So Steve was pretty supportive. Uh, the very first Magic Link, production Magic Link that I got that I could give away, I gave to Steve. Uh, he actually used it. We had some telecard conversations, uh, not for that long, but I would say maybe um, 10 telecards exchanged between us. He was elliptical. He was warning me, hey, you know, this is too ahead of its time, too ambitious, you know. Uh, but he, maybe he was a little jealous, too, because at the time, Next, he was at Next, and Next was having a, a hard time. You know, I would say he was more supportive than I would have expected. And then obviously, 15 years later, after General Magic closes down, it comes to life with the iPhone. Yeah, I don't want to take, I think maybe the movie took, gave us a little too much credit for that. Uh, I believe ex execution is the most important part of developing a, a product, not vision. Visions, even compelling visions are a dime a dozen. Uh, you know, if, if you can't execute on them, they're worthless. And so the execution is where we failed uh, and where the iPhone succeeded. And so I, I don't want to give us too much credit. I cringe a little bit. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the real connection were the people, the team. That's real. You know, the, these people who we steeped in, in, in general magic and our vision were the people who, key people who helped create Android and uh, I, iPhone. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to some other questions now because I'm conscious of time. Um, you have been a part of at least two revolutions. What are the traits of those that can look into the future? So you and Mark and various other people on the team, you can look into the future and ignore the naysayers. Well, what does it take to do that? Well, self-confidence, obviously. I think it takes some idealism because you're going to have bumps in the road. So you have to be idealistic enough to um, be committed to overcome the, the bumps that are inevitable. But besides confidence, you know, vision, uh, you, you need energy. I think you need to be you, you need to be younger than I am now. I could never embark on something like that again. You know, it actually, you know, it helps to be single. Uh, the Mac team was mostly single um, when we were developing the Mac. We were older and, you know, a little more committed. That, but that's why we had the, the young kids, again, and people in their 20s. You know, fomenting a, a revolution like that is, is a young man's game, young person's game you know, just because of the energy and the commitment. You need stamina is a good word, you know, because things are going to take longer than you expect. This is the thing, because a lot of people talk these days about how you, you shouldn't be working overtime, you shouldn't be working weekends, but everyone that I've ever met or interviewed that's worked on something really kind of life-changing 
it they, they do it out of choice no no one's forced them to do it almost it's like sure. if you really believe in something and passionate you will put in extra hours sure but you need us what you need is a sustainable pace right you, you, you can't burn people out you know you're not going to achieve your vision if if you work too hard and quit you know because of it so you you need you need to have the right balance between um you know you could say work life balance but it's it's more like just having a, a, an achievable vision uh realist that's realistic i actually reached out to a few people that know you and asked if there were some stories that I couldn't possibly know, but I should ask you about. So I've got a, a couple here. So one is from Chris Espinosa, and he said to ask you how he almost got you both kicked out of Berkeley in June 1979. What's yes. the story there? Well, um, I was I, an Apple II hobbyist. I worshipped Apple. Uh, Chris, I, I was at Berkeley. Uh, I was a teaching assistant, you know, to support me doing my PhD, and I became in charge of the self-paced introductory programming uh, at UC Berkeley, which was a large program, like 500 kids, basically, uh, that we were teaching without having formal classes. We just had a center they'd come in. Anyway, Chris showed up uh, as one of my pupils. I recognized him. In fact, uh, when the first, very first time uh, I saw an Apple II was at the first West Computer Fair, when it debuted, and I noticed the person demoing it at the booth looked to be about 12 years old. That was Chris Espinoza, who was actually 16 years old, but at the time looked about 12 years old. And so I, I recalled him when I when he stepped into the self-paced uh, computing class saying, hey, I know you, you worked at Apple. And he had taken leave from Apple to go get a college degree. Uh, and so, but we stayed in touch. I loved having the connection with Chris because I could get access to software that otherwise I couldn't. I, so I stayed friends with him. And he had a job, uh, well, even though he was a student at UC Berkeley, uh, Apple hired him on a freelance basis to write the Apple II reference manual, which replaced the legendary Red Book, uh, the technical manual that came with the Apple II. Chris was rewriting it to do a much better job. And he needed access to a high-quality printer uh, in, order to, in order to get proofs of his book uh, in a nice way, nicer than the Apple II could do. Now, I was working on, um, uh, obviously, I had an account to use. You know, I was a grad student there, and I was working on printer driver software, so I could give him access to it. Unfortunately, he wasn't allowed, and undergraduates weren't allowed to use that account. Uh, so I told him, hey, we could get away with this if you promise me one thing. Only work between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m., uh, essentially at night. So no one would see someone who looks like they're, you know, not even an undergraduate <laughs> using the graduate computers. And he did. And we went on for almost a year like that, him just showing up at night using my account. Uh, but then he had a deadline uh, when it needed to be done. Uh, and he couldn't get it done. So he showed up there, you know, in the middle of the day. Right away, he was apprehended. Uh, and the professor who was managing the computer called us both in saying, hey, you know, you're, you knew you're not allowed to do this. Uh, and uh, we could have gotten kicked out of the school. But luckily, the advisor wasn't that strict about things. 
Uh, so we managed to survive. But Chris never got his degree. To this day, he doesn't have an undergraduate degree, not because of that, uh, but because Steve convinced him to drop out of college to come work on the Macintosh in September 81. And he's still at Apple now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Chris is by far now the longest tenured Apple employee. Started when he was 14. Uh, he took those two years off at UC Berkeley. Uh, but they uh, about two years ago, he uh, Apple threw a party for his 40th anniversary as an Apple employee. Pretty amazing. Okay, a couple more. Tom Hershenson of General Magic said that early on at General Magic, uh, you recognized one of the engineers that was visiting from Sony. And apparently there's some story about how you had, did you hide him in a closet? Yeah, the story's in my book. What it, it's more complicated than that. It's not that I, we recognized them, but um, the Twiggy disk drive, which was the disk drive for the Macintosh, was failed. It wasn't reliable enough. That's why the Macintosh shipped six months later than it otherwise could have. We didn't know what to do. Our disk, suddenly our computer didn't have a disk drive. Uh, and um, we were scurrying around. And uh, George Crow, uh, who's on the cover of my book, he designed the analog software. Uh, the analog hardware for the Macintosh. He's the guy at the far left. Uh, had worked at previously at HP, and HP had partnered with Sony uh, to develop a, a great um, next generation disk drive. He showed some samples to the Mac team, and uh, Steve loved it. Except Steve thought we should re-engineer our own three and a half inch disk drive instead of using the ones from Sony. Uh, because he was a perfectionist and a control freak. And we thought that, you know, there was no way we could do that. We were already going to be late. We just needed to buy the disc from Sony. But Steve said, no, we had to work with Alps, our manufacturing partner, to engineer our own. Uh, but we, you know, Bob Belleville, the engineering manager who made me leave, made a wise decision that we should secretly, if defy Steve's wishes, uh, him and George Crow uh, got go, spun up a, a relationship with Sony, but we weren't allowed to tell Steve about it. Uh, but this, in order to get the thing ready, the Sony engineer need to, needed to come work with us in Cupertino. So he'd come in, you know, and um, we'd kind of furtively work with him uh, and manage to schedule it when Steve wasn't around. But one day he was in Larry Kenyon's cubicle, you know, working, and Steve unexpectedly showed up. Uh, and we were, we panicked. We heard his voice before we saw him. And the engineer was there. Steve would clearly find out about what was going on. So uh, George Crow had the presence of mind to say, hey, quick, hide in the supply closet. Uh, and so he did. And uh, then we let him, we knocked on the door and said, oh, it's safe to come out now. And he said something like, boy, um, American engineering practices are, I can't quite understand that. <laughs> so but did the Sony engineer know that he wasn't meant to be there or not? Yes, we had told him, hey, avoid Steve Jobs. <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on. What uh, would you say is your greatest lesson that you learned from Steve Jobs? I would say that um, believe in yourself. Uh, to, it's possible to, to make a difference in the world, to make what Steve would say, to make a dent in the universe. You can actually do it. Everything we see and use around us is, is, you know, made by other people, just like us. We can do great things. What am I most proud of? Uh, I guess uh, my role on the Macintosh team. The Macintosh truly did change the world, and I played a significant part of it. 
And that makes me feel great. Even, even to this day, you know, I watched the Apple announcements yesterday where they announced uh, fantastic improvements to the Macintosh once in 20 year type improvements where they could simultaneously make it uh, three times faster and use a third of the power and, uh, and less expensive. You know, that's like a generational shift. And I, I, I felt some pride. I still feel some, uh, Kinship, parenting, you know, I'm proud of Apple, uh, even though uh, it's been 30-some uh, years since I've worked there. I still feel a close connection to the company. I feel like some of me is still inside of Apple. Lots of Apple is still inside of me. That's so lovely. Looking back, uh, obviously, there's been several films that have been made, some featuring you, a lot of about Steve. What do you think people get wrong? What's the kind of uh, biggest thing that people get wrong about Steve Jobs? Well, I... Things are, are, you know, sort of a cartoon of, of who, who he really was. Uh, they, don't, they don't capture Steve, many of the takes at least don't capture Steve's incredible sense of humor, his, uh, you know, his, his idealism. Uh, you know, he, Steve, Steve was a complex character. He had many sides, uh, some of the sides a little bit dark. Uh, you know, he wasn't inclined to tell the truth much of the time. Uh, but I don't know, things are just this compl very complex character who's a genius and has done incredible things for, for humanity is oversimplified and, and caricatured, I would say. Although it's, it's daunting and hard to capture reality in a movie. Uh, I worked a little bit with the team making the 2015 uh, Steve Jobs movie, uh, the one that Aaron Sorkin wrote. Uh, and whatever, you know, you know, had a little bit of conflict at the way Aaron was telling the story. Well, lots of what was portrayed on the screen wasn't true. Stuff he just made up. And he made me see that it was most important, at least from his point of view as an artist, to tell a deeper truth than the, than the superficial facts. One last question. If you could go back in time to a, a younger um, Andy who's just starting out in his career, what's one piece of advice you'd give him? Sort of, don't be rash. You know, things are going to take longer than they would. I, actually, my advice for me at General Magic is ship something as quickly as you can if, if, it's, if it's something new. Don't, don't try to be a perfectionist. It's so much more valuable to get, get what you're working on in people's hands so you can learn from them rather than to make the best possible thing right away. Now, that's a key mistake I made more than once. All right, thank you so much for your time, okay. Andy. I really appreciate it. I'll okay, be in touch. Okay, well, thank you. That was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode with Andy Hertzfeld. And apologies again for the Wi-Fi issues. This interview was recorded remotely during the COVID pandemic. And whilst we did try our best, we know we didn't fix it completely. If you liked the interview, please feel free to leave a review and subscribe because that helps others find the series. And it would also mean the world to me. A huge thank you again to our sponsor, Sensate, the device which helps you reduce stress and anxiety in as little as 10 minutes a day. Head to www.getsensate.com and use my discount code POD, P-O-D, for 10% off your first order. Finally, if you have time, do check out Andy's book, Revolution in the Valley, the insanely great story of how the map was made. It is a great read full of wonderful stories as well as original sketches, incredible photos, quotes, tales of friendships, 
the highs and lows of Andy's time at Apple, and details of the technical and design genius that made the Macintosh so magical. And if I can leave you with one quote from the book, it is this. The goal was never to beat the competition or to make a lot of money. It was to do the greatest thing possible, or even a little greater. <laughs>